So what we see here, we're going to, there's a problem in the Corinthian church and the way they're doing church, really. The way they're doing church has gone awry. And part of it was, oh, back into control here. Thank you, brother. This feels good. So, yeah, oh yeah, look at that. Okay. So there's a problem in the church. I want you to picture that the way the church was supposed to go, and we'll talk about this at the end, they, were get, they would get together what's called a love feast. That's what we're going to have today, by the way, after church service. We have a meal next door, which would be equivalent to the love feast. And the church would get together for a love feast. Then they would have communion. Of course, there would be teaching, and they'd be singing a, a traditional psalm together, the Hallel. But, so that was the way the church was supposed to have, but something went wrong. They, they were getting together, and as, as Chandler just read, they were getting way off track in this whole process of doing church. So Paul has to rebuke them and redirect them and and how to, in this case, handle the Lord's Supper. So we're going to look at three things. We're going to look at the problem, the purpose of the Lord's Supper, and then we're going to look at the preparation that should take place for the Lord's Supper. Communion. So first, the the problem. So he says, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. He starts off by saying, you know, you're, you're supposed to be getting together to build up the body of Christ. You're supposed to be getting together to praise and worship God. You're supposed to be getting together to confess and repent of your sins. You're supposed to be getting together to have fellowship and unity in the body. And it's supposed to be better. It's supposed to make everybody better by getting together, to build each other up. And it's also supposed to be a bright light to the dark world. When they see the church gatherings, they want to be part of that love feast. They want to be part of that body, part of that family. And he says, but the reality is, the way you're doing church, it's not for the better, because you're not really truly worshiping God. It's for the worse. It's worse for the body. You're not building it up. And it's worse for any unbelievers looking in upon the church because you're doing it wrong. So he starts off with that rebuke, and then he gets into the specifics here. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. Now this word church always, within the New Testament, means gathering of believers. Many times they, they gather in people's homes, or buildings, or even outside. He says, but as you're getting together to this, to this so-called body of believers, I, I've heard there's divisions among you, I believe it in part, in other words, you know, I know this is happening to some extent within, within the church. And we'll see that there, there's this, this temptation that we've already seen earlier, is that they're getting together, and the temptation is the Jews are with the Jews having a kosher meal, right? And the Greeks are with the Greeks having meat that's been sacrificed to idols. There's these cliques and groups, the rich are with the rich, and there's the poor with the poor, And it's all this disunity within the body of Christ. These are the divisions that are taking place. And he said that's not what it intended to be. But then he gives us this interesting truth here that we should talk about for a minute. He says, but, he says, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Do you see that? He He's going to get into this problem of this disunity in the church, but he does say that I realize that some of the disunity within the church is allowed by God to purify the church. He said so. He says that is the way the church, the real believers within the church will be identified is when these trials and tribulations come within the church, these factions. Are you, are you good with this? 
So here, here's what's happened in our church a number of times is we've had wolves in sheep clothing come in here, right? So wolves with sheep clothing come in and what they start doing is they build some relationships and then they start whispering, grumbling, and complaining against the leadership and they grumble and complain about some doctrinal position that we have and, and they, they create divisions in the church. Those are factions, right? And so why it purifies is that what the leadership does as quickly as possible, they identify a wolf and they ask him to leave the church. But what happens is the purification part is that what happens is some of the people that aren't truly born again align with the wolf and leave with the wolf. Are you with me on this? And so God purifies the church because this false teacher gathers people that aren't sound in the word of God and, and they go with them and they, and they leave and then the church is purified. That's what Paul's talking about that happens sometimes. Now let me all see that factions is a, is a big issue. And, and leadership is aware of it, and they address it as quickly as possible to get the wolves, the false teachers, the grumblers, and complainers out of the church to protect the rest of the body. And we've had to do that, sadly, a number of times. Because it will not only purify the church, but it can bring harm to the church, especially with new believers, if they start to hold on to some of these false doctrines. And the other thing that factions do is it really is a discouragement to the leadership of the church, because it's hard work. So we need to get them out as quickly as possible so that the leadership can also focus on our main call, which is to make disciples. So that's what he's talking about. He goes, I know some of these factions are good, but a lot of them are not good that's going on in the church. They're not ordained by God. It's the sinfulness, sinfulness of the Corinthian um, church. So he says, when, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal one goes hungry, another gets drunk. Sound like a good church service? What? What? Do you, do you have houses to eat and drink in? Don't you have houses to eat and drink in? For, so you got to picture this. That, you know, church starts at 10 o'clock or whatever. People are getting there at different times. You come in. Let's say you go next door. Somebody's got a grill going, and they've they got a group of guys they like to hang with and gals, and they're already eating a meal. Someone else comes that's poor, that has no food. They show up. They have no place to eat. And there's this complete disunity going on in the church. And some people are drinking some wine with their meal, and they're drinking so much wine that by the time the proper church service starts, they're drunk. And he said this thing's totally broken. And you can imagine, because that time, that time in history, the church was growing, multiplying rapidly. People were bringing unbelievers to the church, and this is what they were witnessing. is this chaotic so-called church service, which was no church service at all. You know, Jesus prayed that the church should live in unity, commanded the church live in unity, and that was the problem. Is this church was very uh, fractured and uh, independent. There was no unity of the body going on within the, with the believers. I'd also say whenever you start to see disunity in the church, that is a, a warning sign. God is setting off the alarm that we need to examine the church to find out exactly what's causing the disunity. And he says, you know, you, don't you have houses? If you're that hungry, eat before you come. Don't come. I mean, can you imagine, like, we're going to have a meal today, and I could tell you that it's biscuits and gravy and bacon. And if some of you are real hungry, you're not going to be able to pay attention to the service. You're gonna be, your stomachs will start growling. And say, oh, when is he going to shut up so we can go eat? So, so the point is, is, don't come so hungry that you can't control yourself. Eat something before you come to church so you can pay attention. And then join in the love meal 
the, the love feast in, in a way that you can enjoy fellowship instead of your head down and the plate just... By the way, that's not what our meals are for. Our, meal, our meals are not to feed you because we think you all need food. It's to set the context where we can have fellowship together over breaking bread and talking about what the Lord's doing in our life. And you shouldn't sit with the same people every time we have a meal. You should sit with people you don't know. That is the purpose of the love feast that we have. So today, put that to work, please. And he said, what shall I say? Shall I command you, com- commend you in this? No, I will not. So, so you see the problem. That's what's going on in the church, this disunity. And so now he gets into the purpose of the, of the Lord's Supper. And by the way, this is something very familiar to you, I pray, because this is what Tyler and I use as we introduce communion every week. And most theologians believe this is one of the most beautiful pieces of Scripture in the entire Bible. It's very, very special. So he says, For, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. Just another trivia piece for you. A lot of scholars believe that 1 Corinthians was written before any of the Gospels were written. So this would have been the first public teaching of the Lord's Supper came through 1 Corinthians. And so he says, for what I received, and Paul said, I received this directly from the Lord. The Lord gave me this, this command. The Lord gave me the instructions on this to share with you. Then he says that the, the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, so stay with me, brothers and sisters. When, when did Jesus institute the wonderful gift of the Lord's Supper? The night he was betrayed. There's significance in that. They were up in the, the upper room. They were, they were there to celebrate the what? The Passover feast. And in the middle of this Passover, right, right when he was betrayed, when, when Judas betrayed him, this is the very night the religious leader, leaders seized him, this is the very night the people of Israel will reject him as their promised Messiah. The very night that Jesus was arrested and falsely accused. This was the night that Jesus chose to take the Passover meal and turn it into the Lord's Supper. And why this is so important, brothers and sisters, you've got to picture this, is that in just a little while, the apostles are going to think that Satan won. They're going to think they lost this bet. Jesus, they don't understand this crucifixion, crucifixion, this suffering, this pain. They didn't, they couldn't possibly comprehend that. And even though he told them over and over that when he died on the third day he'd raise again, they just couldn't understand. So they're about to face the great discouragement of this that we lost, that we were defeated. Jesus isn't the Messiah. So in that this process of being betrayed, Jesus instituted this Lord's Supper because this will serve as an encouragement to them in the days ahead and it will serve as an encouragement for us because we're to practice this until when? Christ returns. He says, I'm giving this to you as a precious, holy gift to remind you that even though you thought there was defeat, there was great victory on that day and in that he instituted the Lord's Supper. So it says here, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you to do this in remembrance of me. Words we all know well. Now, an important truth for us to grasp is 
Western culture people, is this body. When we hear the word body, when we take communion, we think of the body being what? You know, it's the bread, yes? Mercedes, right? Yeah. Hey, Mercedes, thanks for participating on your first day here. <laughs> but we always, what, what a lot of the, church, the Western churches would think is, is, well, that's his broken body. That's his crucified body. That, that's, what I'm, that's what I'm taking. Is it's his broken physical body. But the Jewish culture would never think of body as being, they thought of uh, as the person, the whole person. So it would be like me saying, what, what, what do you guys, don't you love Demetrius? And what would you, you would start telling, we talk about the attributes of Demetrius. He's an encourager, he's a servant. We'd be talking about all of who Demetrius is as we know him, right? When they said the body to the Jewish culture, that's what they would think of all of that Jesus was. Not just his physical broken body, but everything, his miraculous, the fact that he, he left the glory of heaven to become man, that the miraculous birth, his baptism with John the Baptist, they would go review all the things that they knew about Jesus. Oh, how compassionate he was. Can you remember walking through these towns and he was healing everyone of everything? Do you remember his bold teaching? We've never heard teaching like that before. He was such a bold teacher of the word of God. He was so kind. How about his prayer life? Man, I want to pray like Jesus prayed. When, when, when they said, this is my body, this is everything. Who I was, who you remember me to be. Do you think the apostles would only remember him being beaten on the cross? They spent three and a half years, day and night with him in ministry. They had story upon story to share with each other about who Jesus was. This consistent pattern of a loving God. So when we take the bread, we're supposed to remember who Jesus is. Who he was and who he is. Everything. And he says, this is my body, this is, this is me, this is all of me, which is for what? For you. You see that? Which is for you. All of what I've done, leaving the, leaving the glory of God the Father, coming down and being man, living this sinless life, being baptized, going to the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights, entering into this ministry for three and a half years, teaching, healing everyone and everything, then going to the cross and dying, I did this for you. So, I mean, as we reflect on that, we know that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through Him. This, this is the only way we could be saved. This, there was no plan B. This is the, way we, the only way we could be saved. And Jesus says, I, I gave it all, I did it all, so that you might be saved. I did this for you. He says, so when you come up here and take communion, the Lord's Supper, and you continue to practice this until I return, do this in remembrance of me. This is to celebrate what I've done for you. That I've made a way that you might be saved. And by the way, this another contextual thing here. This thing, do in remembrance of me, 
this is why I don't think we do a good job of this, brothers and sisters, in, in the Western church either. This word remembrance to the Jews is a word of deep meditation. It's a deep med. Oh, yeah, yeah, Jesus, yeah, he was born. No, they would deeply meditate on who Jesus was. They would, they would run it through their mind of all they know of Jesus from, for us would be through the word of God and what we know about him. It's, it's not, oh, yeah, I remember. It's meditation. It's heart-level reflection on what Jesus has done for us. Are you with me on this? We don't just walk up here, grab the body, and oh, yeah, thanks, Jesus, for dying on the cross. Appreciate it. It's this deep reflection of, oh, I mean, where would I be? How, where would I be apart from Jesus? What would my life look like apart from Jesus? His teaching, his life, his death, everything. Yeah, I mean, do you ever meditate on the fact of what it was like for Jesus to leave the Father, to come and be man to begin with? These are things we should be meditating deeply on before we come for communion. So do this and remember to me is this deep meditation of this reality of what he's done. Y'all still doing all right? My prayer here today, brothers and sisters, is that we will never take communion the same. That's my prayer. You will never look at communion the same after we look at this teaching. That's my prayer. It says, in the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The new covenant, what is he talking about? He's talking about the saving covenant that he's instrumenting, implementing within the body of Christ. It's a saving covenant. And what I mean is, just to give you some comparison, the covenant with the Passover meal, the blood of the Passover provided salvation for the physical death. The blood of the Lord's Supper represents the believer's salvation from eternal death and damnation. A little bit more significant? Physical death, eternal death. The blood of the Passover provided freedom from 400 years of slavery, physical slavery to Egypt. The blood of the Lord's Supper represents the believer's call to eternal freedom from slavery, sin, Satan, and death. The blood of the Passover provided deliverance of the Jewish people into a new nation on earth within the promised land. The the blood of the Lord's Supper represents the believer's deliverance into the family of God, the eternal family of God, which is in heaven. Do you see the comparison? This is the new covenant, Jesus said. Blood is significant. It's the bond of the covenant is the blood. So he says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I love that. So, proclaim. Don't miss that word, proclaim. So here it is, brothers and sisters. As we come to take the Lord's Supper together, brothers and sisters, we're proclaiming what Jesus has done, what what Jesus did to set us free from slavery to sin and Satan. It's a proclamation. It's a rejoicing. It's, a, it's, the, it's the unity. It's the bond of us. That was, this, is the, this is what brought us into this family of God is the bond that came from the death of Jesus Christ to make a way so that we might be saved. Amen. And so when we come up, it's like, woo! Yes! Proclaim it. Thank you, Jesus. And the other part of it is, as there, and listen to this, there sh- there's always unbelievers in the church on Sunday as they sit here and, and they should not partake in, in communion, which I'll talk about in a couple minutes, but as they see us rejoicing in this great gift that 
that Jesus brought to us through his life and his death and his resurrection, and that they're, they're drawn into the body of Christ as they see the new creation life within the church. So we proclaim it. We proclaim his death. We proclaim that we know apart from it, we would still be lost. Apart from it, we'd be dead in our sins. There would be no life. It comes through this celebration that we, we recognize that. And he says, you continue to do this until what? Until he comes. By the way, that's... See, again, let's go back to what I said about the discouragement. The, the, the apostle would be discouraged after his death. And he says, listen, I'm coming back. I'm coming back. Don't worry. I, I have, this is, when he said that, he says, I have completely defeated Satan. I've completely defeated sin. I've completely defeated death. Continue this in remembrance of me until I come back. That's so good. Okay, so that is the purpose of the Lord's Supper. You get a picture of it, I pray. And the last part for this morning is the preparation. He helps them to tell them how they should prepare for the Lord's Supper. Y'all good still? All right. It's a lot of scripture this morning. It says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. That's pretty intense. This guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord means you're dishonoring the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. You're dishonoring Him. Don't dishonor Jesus. So what is some unworthy manner someone can take communion? Unbelief. Unbelief. Who said that? Yes, brother. Amen. That's my first one. You got my first one. That's Unconfessed sin. Good. Great. I love it. What's that? Yes. Thank you, Earl. That's great. Unforgiveness and bitterness toward you. Unforgiveness or bitterness as you come would be an unworthy manner. You're hitting all my list. I love it. Good job, church. So an unbeliever takes communion. They come in and they take it. Why is that unworthy? Because it's for believers only. You can't partake in the celebration of the Lord's death and resurrection if you're not a believer. And so you're, what you're doing is we'll talk about you're piling on condemnation upon yourself. And when you get understand that, the reverent fear of God, the fear of what might happen to you will keep you in the pew. You'll let people pass. But what happens, a church gets filled and you start entering pews. Yeah, I'll go up there. You know, you can't do that. There's, there's, there's severe consequences it's not that you'll be saved or lost, but if you're not a believer, you're heaping on condemnation upon yourself because this is an unworthy celebration as an unbeliever and you're, you're, you're dishonoring God, the very Son of God, Jesus Christ. The second one that was hit, you guys hit this one, is that if a, a believer takes communion without proper, proper reverence and fear of the Lord, you, you can't just stumble up here. You need to have reverent fear of God. This awe of God needs to live within us. He is the holy, almighty God of the universe, the creator and sustainer of all life. And there has to be a reverent fear as you come before the, the great cost that was paid that you might be saved. There should be this reverence as you come to the Lord's table. Are you with me? And the third one is 
that it, it was what um, Robin said, if you don't examine your hearts before you come, you should be confessing all the sins that the Holy Spirit reveals to you and repenting of those sins before you come take the Lord's Supper. Be as clean as you possibly can. Another one that would be unworthy is if someone comes to take communion believing that this has the power to save them. Some false teachers say that if I, you know, if I just do communion and I do a few things, then I will be saved. The salvation is from Christ and Christ alone. This is a celebration of what He has done. There's no power to save anybody in this. That would be unworthy. Dishonoring God. Dishonoring, by the way, God the Father does not like when someone dishonors His Son. As we'll see. And then as Earl said, if someone comes to take communion while holding unforgiveness or bitterness in their heart, in other words, someone sinned against you, there's vertical and horizontal forgiveness, right? They may want nothing to do with the horizontal, but the vertical forgiveness you've got to deal with. You forgive the brother or sister before the Lord before you come take communion. So these were the kind of things that were going on in the church. I think these things still go on in the church where if you go and take communion in an unworthy manner, Now we can be patient with me. There's a lot of things here because then, then it says, let a person examine himself then and so eat the bread and drink of the cup. So we, we see clearly a strong call to examine ourselves. And we've already talked about that. You, before we come forward, we, we need to take the time to, to talk to God about a various variety of things of, of what we just talked about. Is there any for, unforgiveness on my heart? Is there... Is there any sin I haven't confessed? It's this process of doing a deep self-examination before you come up and take, this, take the communion, is what he's saying. Don't take it lightly. What's your attitude about communion towards other believers? Why do I want to partake in communion? What is the purpose? Check your motivations for, for celebrating the Lord's Supper. Let me just say this, brothers and sisters, is that I know you'd all agree that we must all keep short accounts, right? Daily we should be examining ourselves and repenting, confessing and repenting, right? But hear, what you, hear this. This is a special cleansing, supernatural work of God, communion is. I don't know how else to say it to you. It, it's, it's a deeper searching of our souls because we're in a, in, in a way a special way that God created us we're coming into the, the, the presence of the Lord in a unique way I don't know how else to say that so you know there's this ongoing daily cleansing and then this is the deep cleanse that's going to happen to Ralph's house today this deep cleanse of the soul right and it's important you see that as, as you come forward there should be this reverence and this this sense of awe and, and, and God is, you're, you're meeting with Jesus in a special way and, and there's this unique intimacy with Jesus in, in communion and there's this unique self-examination in communion. Is that, you understand? And then we get into some consequences here. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak, weak, sick, and some have died. 
Now let's clarify this a little bit here again. Stay with me. Does, does this mean a truly born-again believer, if he takes communion in an unworthy manner, is condemned? No. What does Romans teach us? Yeah, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's not what he's talking about here. But, but there is condemnation that those who take communion that are unbelievers and they're piling up, as I've already said, additional condemnation upon themselves by taking communion as unbelievers. But there's two similar Greek words here. Krima, which equals judgment, which means discipline to the children of God. Did you get that? It, that word, that Greek word is talking about discipline of believers through God. The other one is katakrima, which is condemnation for those who remain enemies of God. So those are two different words. And so he's saying for those who have taken Lord's Supper that are not saved, they're piling on condemnation. But for those who are saved and partaking in the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner will receive the Lord's discipline. The Lord's discipline. He will discipline you. Like I said, God the Father does not like when his son is dishonored in any way. And God will not just let that go. Now let me tell you, he does it because he loves us. He, he's not this angry God trying to bring discipline. He's trying to restore us all into right relationship. He wants us to have the proper reverence and fellowship with Jesus Christ. And sometimes we have to be disciplined for us to get there. Are you with me on that? So don't ever think he's some angry God just bringing revenge. It's not revenge. It's a loving discipline to guide us back into the right relationship with God. And we see here that some of them were sick, some of them were weak, and some were even dying. Some were even dying. Now let me give you another application here. Is sadly today many Christians get weak, they get sick, and they think it's just physical. You with me on this? Quite often our weakness and sickness, and even as we're facing death, can be discipline of the Lord. You okay with that? And so we, we what we tend to do in our culture is just run to the doctor. Fix this. But let me ask you this question. Even if it isn't discipline, is God aware that you're sick? Yes. Is he in control that you should, if you're sickness? Yes. He's in control of all things. So, so here's what happens. They, they, they start to worry a lot. They're worriers. And, and, and is worry a sin? Yes. yes. Do not be anxious for anything. They're worried. Or they're angry people. Is angry holding on to anger a sin? Yes. yes. And so... And, there, and there's this constant state of, it's a sinfulness, it's a sinful pattern in their life. They're worried about everything, they're, they're, they're angry at everybody, they're always grumbling and complaining, and on and on the list goes. And in that, God brings sickness. He brings sickness into those situations. And what do they do? They run to the doctor, listen, I, I, I need some Prozac. I just can't deal with all this worrying going on in my life. And God's saying, come to me, I, I'm disciplining you for, for your good and my glory. So the first place we should always run when we're sick is what? To God. He's in control. God, what, what, what are you trying to teach me in this? What, am I being disciplined? I want to know what I'm being disciplined for so I can work my way out of this. And many times, I'm telling you, I've seen it countless times, He will heal you. I'm not giving you a prosperity gospel here. I'm just saying He will heal you. He wants, he wants you to have an abundant life. He does. But He will not have an abundant life as you live in sin, worry, fear, anger. It's dishonoring to God. 
So that's what's going on in this church. Uh, do you think he still kills people once in a while? <laughs> I like what Al said. It's unfiltered here. I mean, we don't Anna, Ananias and Sapphira, right? right? That's New Testament. They lied, and what happened? They dropped dead. Now, why did they drop dead? Do you, where did they go? I'm sure they went to glory. It was an early homecoming for them. But it was also a discipline on the church. So the church, remember what happened? Fear spread throughout the church. Reverent fear of God spread throughout the church because God took a couple guys, a guy and a gal out. And I've told you this one many times. The one that always comes to mind is this dear brother, Kevin, who came to the mission, and I spent a lot of time with him. He used to come to my office. He was so hungry and thirsty for God's Word. We'd sit in our conference room for hours and study the Word of God. But he went back to his sinful ways, and God took him out. And I am convinced 100% that I will see him in heaven. But you know what? When that happened, it went around. Because everybody knew he was a godly guy. Young man, only in his 20s, I think, when he died. Everybody knew he was a godly guy and really sought the Lord. And it was a wake-up call to a lot of believers. So sometimes he still does that. And by the way, do you think those people are regretting the fact that they, they failed God? I would say that they may have initial regrets that they didn't live the fullness of life that God wanted them to. They didn't gain all the jewels in their crown. But they're in glory with Jesus. And then it says, but if we, we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. Do you see that? What is he saying there? He's saying that I don't want to have to discipline you. Examine yourselves, yourselves. Look at your own life. Confess and repent. And I won't have to discipline you. And by the way, that should be a great motivation for all of us, this reverend fear of God. I don't want to be... Ralph and I have talked about this. Man, I don't like when God disciplines me. It's awful. And one of, the, one of the worst ways he disciplines me is there's a separation between me and him. You been there? It's, 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 you know, it's like my dad's turned his back on me. And hopefully you love God so much that that's all you need. I don't need a spanking. I don't need a belt. I don't... He just turns away from me a little bit, and that breaks my heart. So he says, you, you don't, none of us want, want to get his discipline, so examine yourselves, make sure you're right before God so that he doesn't have to examine us, or discipline us. But when we are judged, we're almost done, you know, it's a lot of verses there, but when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. He's just saying that he, he disciplines us so that we will be what he wants us to be. So then, my brothers, when you, he's closing this out, so then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment about the other things I will give direction when I come. So let me do a couple application comments with this verse here. Because here's a picture of what our church should look like. It says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. So here's the application challenge for us. How do you prepare for Sunday service? What is your routine to prepare to come here on Sundays? Do you have? Daily prayer. Daily prayer. 
Okay, good. I like that. I mean, Ralph says self-examination before he comes to church. He spends time looking at his life and making sure that there's not any unconfessed sin in his heart. I, I just would say that what I've seen generally is people don't prepare at all. It's just another day. Their preparation is getting to church on time. And I'm just, I'm going to get in your kitchen here a little bit. That's not enough. This is a big deal, Sunday service. And we all need to prepare. You, you, you know, maybe, you, you know, in our family when our kids were little, that was the day dad made breakfast early. We had a big breakfast. And they ate right. They would all remember it was that was our breakfast. And Mary's just getting her confirmation. But so we, we would have a big breakfast early in the morning. We're getting, it was a special day. The kid, I wanted my kids to know it was a special day. That was the day Dad got up and made bacon and eggs and pancakes or whatever it was. We had a big breakfast. It was Sunday morning. And, and they didn't come to church hungry. And, you know, it's, it's a good day to get up and spend a little, you know, set your alarm a little, maybe 15 minutes earlier. Just spend a little time in prayer and preparation that you're going to go be with the body of believers. Prepare your hearts for that. How about this? Pray for the church on Sunday morning. Pray for the leaders. Pray for the brothers and sisters. You know, pray for the body before you go to church. Repent. Do all those things. Another thing that's great about expository preaching, how about reading the scripture that you know we're going to be studying that day in church? Read through it once. Just read through it. You'll get a lot more. And let me tell you, if you make an, if you make an active discipline of doing some preparation for church on Sunday, you'll get 100% more out of the service than you do now. 